Within the depths of the strip mall of the dam lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient batwing doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles. To scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We the brethren of the Lens Hall do commune to judge this offering of cinema worthy of our esteem. Let us pass down as a worthless hookum. Let us What I did on my holidays. No, no, that's shit. The events of the tragic and mysterious conclave of the Cinemania Society, comma, the time we looked into the mouth of madness, period. Too much? I like it. It's got a certain puzzle. I was going for razzle-dazzle, but I'll take what I can get. Yeah, perhaps it's time to discuss the need for bug powder when considering any serious artistic endeavor. I need to think. Innerzone wants this report by midnight. It was a night like any other. Yeah. And we're about to discuss a movie. Fellow Cinemeisters, I'd like to present for your consideration tonight an obscure 1970s British no, psychodrama. No, 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 God, no, Jesus. No, never again. To discuss a movie of my own choosing, I felt that this one was a definite candidate for condemnation. I introduced it to them. Listen, guys, okay, here we go. In the mouth of madness, huh? Huh? This is great. Uh, this is one of the first really psychedelic. Oh, what's this? That... Come on! Shit, are you kidding me? That piece of shit? I couldn't make head or tails of that. No, oh, no. That is the worst. <clears throat> no, no, no. Even for John Carpenter, that's bad. I was sure the others would go along. So, it, get this straight. Okay, so it's got Sam Neill, but he's not researching dinosaurs. He's going like bug fuck crazy. All right. oh, I like it. Holy I shit. Do. This is like a, a Lovecraft, uh, but like done by John Carpenter. Hell yeah. Yeah, no, this, this is what I'm saying. Sounds like crappy. Her. Nah. Even Zachariah liked the idea. But, you know, I love Stephen King and John Carpenter. What could go wrong? So shall we continue? I'm for it. Okay. Yeah, yeah let's go ahead. All right. I always agree with Zachariah. Andy is my best friend. We have to have something playing on the screen of the restricted room. They even let me be a pontifex of presentment for a change, even though they don't trust that I'm not going to give them something laced with bug powder. <clears throat> Welcome, brethren and sisters, to this conclave of the Cinemania Society. Please be seated. <clears throat> and welcome to our listeners, to whom I will now issue this warning. We, disciples of the Cinemania Society, have studied the mysteries of the motion picture and meditated upon the silver screen for many years. Therefore, we have become inured to the films we scrutinize. Or, well, we've just 
mainline them too much, which may contain hazards unsuitable to young and sensitive ears. As such, we advise anyone listening to do so with discretion. Guard your ears carefully, lest you develop a severe and irreversible case of cinemania. Present at our conclave tonight are Sinquisitor Ethan, Keeper of the Lenses. I am here. Professor Andrea, Scholar of San Francisco. Yes. Scrutinizer Zachariah, Guardian of the Door. What's past is prologue. And Verifier Andy, Master Illuminator. Past is prologue. And we'll see who else we can rope in occasionally for tonight. I am Profligator Daniel, Cognoscente of Epicuriosity. I will be serving as Pontifex of Presentment for tonight's subject of scrutiny, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Brother Ethan will act as Master Castigator for this conclave. Certainly, I cannot wait. Brother Ethan, present the charges. <clears throat> charges against In the Mouth of Madness include doing an inception without a permit, exceeding the limit of maximum three stories within a story, criminal underuse of Sam Neill, criminal overuse of Sam Neill, willful and knowing casting of Charlton Heston in a film with neither Simeons nor Soylent Green, contributing to the ongoing megalomania of Stephen King, being a flagrant patchwork ripoff of horror novel tropes with malice aforethought. Suspicion of being a heavy metal version of Groundhog Day. Failure to include synth within a John Carpenter soundtrack. Expecting us to believe that an insurance investigator would have a sense of humor, or really any personality whatsoever. BDSM elder abuse. Being a terrible tease for 90s monster effects, any of which honestly would have made for a better film. And... Tentacles! Did you hear that? Tentacles? There's tentacles all throughout yeah. this film. <laughs> I'm shocked. It's shocked! Tentacles? Is there ten tentacles? I swear, this film had more tentacles than, 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 than Orotsuka Doji had. And Legend not, of the Overfiend didn't have as many. And not one single schoolgirl. Criminal. Thank you, Brother Ethan. And I was feeling a little tired, like I needed a break, so we need to add. Brothers, shall we open the door to sponsorship? Why if, not? Yeah. If we not? must. So, we were about to get into it, and then Brother Raya had some bullshit to bring up as usual. And Fellow Inquisitors, before we start, Scrutinizer Zachariah has some society business announcements to make. <sighs> okay, you primitive screwheads, listen up. Whoever took the tinfoil out of my fez to warm up their baked potato, that was incredibly fucked up. <coughs> Mind him and me. <clears throat> Without the tinfoil lining in my fez, you know that I am vulnerable to being possessed by the ghost of this video store. This time, the ghost of Murray the manager got to me, and that sadistic bastard made me watch every single Michael Bay Transformers in a marathon. All of them, including the fucking Bumblebee spinoff. <clears throat> That's one like of the whole lot. <laughs> Do 
you know what it's like to be stuck behind your own eyes screaming silently into the CGI never-ending desiccation of your favorite cartoon from your youth? God, Lord. No. Whoever took that out of his fez needs to return it immediately. I've, I've already done that. Look, I know Cinemania affects us all differently. Be it my possessions, Sinquisitor Ethan's disappearing, reappearing accent. What accent? I have no idea what you're talking about. Keeper Daniel's obsession with his creepy Clark Nova bug typewriter. I'm not obsessed. Clark Nova is just misunderstood. Seriously, I can stop using it anytime I want. We got the professor talking in tongues. Tarantino, Bachman, Pluto Nash. Or the rest of you lunatics with your weird fetishes. Well, I think I got off easy. I don't think so. It's your turn to give Methuselah his meds today. Oh, but he's a biter. And Andre, by the way, Andre got left on a forbidden planet the last conclave after getting drunk on Kentucky bourbon, and he missed his flying saucer because he was on a bender with Robbie the Robot. So we're going to have to drag the Interocitor out of the sub-basement five to contact him for this week's conclave. Wait, we have an Interocitor? Yeah, it's buried under old copies of The Adventures of Pluto Nash and Ishtar. Oh, in the hazardous waste bin. I get Brother Methuselah to drag it up in. Oh, but the elevator is broken. It's ten flights of stairs. Don't be lazy, you withered old sandwich. No, very well. I don't appreciate withered And lastly, if listeners of our conclave from other chapters want to ask us questions, please email us at insert email address, and we will try to answer your questions during the next conclave. That's all I got for now. Insert email address, really? I don't keep track of these things, man. It's the Cinemania Society at gmail.com. I just want everyone to know I handle the dating advice. <laughs> Bring your own bug powder. <laughs> yeah, and thanks to a little McAllen 12, I actually gave enough of a buck to finish this story. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, Brother Andy introduced the film or some bullshit. I think I should introduce the film, or some bullshit. Well, we open to the strains of John Carpenter in full-on hair metal mode. There will be no subtle plinky-plonk keyboards here. It's all electric guitars wailing away. The opening shots show us a book being printed on massive presses. And what book is it? None other than In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, I love it when they use the title of the movie in the movie. They said the title in the thing. Yeah, it's like when Luke Skywalker said, I'm really tired of all these Star Wars. That was my joke from two episodes ago. <laughs> yeah, as I was uh-uh. the Cronenberg said, this lunch is all naked. Not Damn. very efficient, but what could it all mean? Well, we cut to a charming seaside insane asylum. Seems like we start a lot of our movies this way. A new inmate is being delivered. He insists that he's not crazy, which is probably not what you want to be screaming at the top of your lungs while being bundled into a padded cell by burly orderlies. Sounds completely plausible to me. (laughs) Yeah, it would. Sounds like Friday night to me. (laughs) I believe it. You've got the tinfoil nicely nestled in that fez, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
Character actor John Glover is running the place, and you can tell he's kind of prissy and tightly wound by his bow-tie and almost eraser-head-style haircut. The new inmate is John Trent, played by none other than Sam Neill. Yay! The- <laughs> Wasn't this the guy who played, uh, this is the guy who played Damien. This is the guy who played Damien in The Omen. He was the Antichrist. Oh, that's right. It was? Yes! Sam Neill played Damien in The Omen, too. He was the Antichrist. Yeah. It's know. a recurring theme for him in his roles. <laughs> yeah, that, that Neill, was... I was going to say, Sam Neill is like, everybody knows him for one thing, being the slightly gruff but charming, uh, um, you know, d- dinosaur doctor from but, Jurassic Park, and everything else is psychopath. Well, that's why everything went to shit at Jurassic Park, because you don't send the fucking Antichrist to Jurassic Park. <laughs> it, it, Spe- speaking of shit in the Antichrist, uh, The Omen 2 was the first uh, movie I ever saw that had uh, butt sex in it. So <laughs> It's almost as if Sam Neill was thinking about what movies he could be in, but not about what movies he should be in. So, <laughs> didn't they originally want Tom Selleck or something for uh, Jurassic Park? Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. Okay, that was enough of that tangent. Then Andy got back to describing the movie for us. Well, in between insisting very calmly that he is not crazy, he suffers from horrifying visions of blood and death. So totally not a nut job, right? Well, Sam Neill is visited by some kind of a therapist played by the criminally underused David Warner. Now, by this time, Sam has had a time to do a little decorating. He asked for a black crayon, and he's used it to cover the walls and himself in crucifixes. He explains- It looks like Trent got mobbed by a satanic kindergarten. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, but I thought most kindergartens were satanic, weren't they? At least that's what they told us in the 80s. And this is why in Jurassic Park, he just likes to try eviscerating all those little kindergartners with the talon from a velociraptor. See, it all makes sense. It all ties together. It was definitely a learning moment. It's all the Sam Neill extended universe, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The MCU, yeah. SCU. He explains that even though he's totally sane, he has decided that actually the nut house is the safest place to stay and he wants people to leave him in here. You see, the world outside is going straight to hell and Sam Neill knows it. He rather graciously agrees to explain himself. And from this point on, we're seeing a flashback where Sam is telling us just how things got to this point. Story within a story, number one. You see? You with me? Eh? I don't know. There's no cricket in this one, so it's hard to follow. Well, he's pulling a Douglas Adams here, isn't he? Isn't he where he's setting a sign up outside the asylum? It says the interior of the asylum, and he goes into his cell, and it's the outside. Kind of, yeah. That was in uh, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, as I said, yeah. he pulled a Douglas Adams. Anyway, carry yes. on. <laughs> well, sometime before, Sam used to be a freelance insurance investigator, whatever the hell that is supposed to mean. And how does this even work as a business model? Anyway, Sam's job is to investigate insurance fraud, you know, for any insurance company that might need a hand with that. As you know, insurance companies are known for being super trusting and easy to fool, and so they need a lot of outside help from hard-boiled freelance investigators. It tracks. 
<laughs> yes, hard-boiled uh, insurance investigators with a very, very thinly disguised New Zealand accent. Yeah, it's, it's all <laughs> As an expert in thinly disguised accents, I can tell you. <laughs> the more hard-boiled you are, the bigger your shoulder pads are on your suit in this one. In a scene that doesn't really matter to the movie, we see that Sam is good at his job. He solves a fraud case by proving that a businessman burned down his own warehouse for the insurance money. Sam is the kind of freelance insurance investigator who will track down your mistress to take pictures with a telephoto lens in order to prove you have given her a stolen fur coat. It's all incredibly film noir. After doing such a good job, Sam's insurance company contact offers him a fresh new gig, and they discuss it over coffee in the charming little cafe of madness, madness which has, madness. and this is important, a massive window looking out onto the street. A publishing company has lost their best author. He disappeared mysteriously without producing his latest manuscript, and Sam's job is to find out if they're on the level or whether this is all some kind of con. You know, one of those publishing cons where authors are whisked off into the ether. It happens all the time. I haven't, haven't you heard? Of it? I believe that must have happened to Stephen King at least four or five times. No, he got to J.K. Rowling. <laughs> no, Stephen King got hit by a car. But did he, though? Haven't you ever read Christine? I talk that about car irony. was driven by Dean Koontz. <laughs> well, well played well played <laughs> but you do have to say there is a significant striking irony of him writing a novel about people committing vehicular homicide in uh, in a car and then him getting hit by a car 20 years later and then he wrote that into a book uh, made it really uh, important in the uh, dark tower series it's, oh. like that, it's like that famous quote from George Lucas. Sometimes you just got to run a good thing into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> now that's pod racing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. While they're discussing the author, a hugely influential horror writer called Sutter Kane, a rather unhinged looking fellow, walks across the street outside and quite calmly destroys that big window with an axe. Towering over Sam Neill, he asks, do you read Sutter Kane? Before being shot by a couple of cops who, I don't know, just happened to be in the cafe at the time. This was the most unbelievable thing to me, that the cops would actually risk themselves to do this. Innocent times, the 90s. Innocent times. Yep. Uh, this was before the Supreme Court ruling that basically said that cops didn't have any legal obligation to protect the public or risk themselves at all in any way whatsoever. Please, we're here to discuss fantastical works of unbelievable fiction. Don't bring that kind of nonsense into it. <laughs> Truly unbelievable. Sam visits the publisher. The big chief of the company is played by Charlton Heston. So you know these are serious people. He introduces his sexy replicant sidekick, a young lady called Styles, and they tell Sam that Sutter Kane simply vanished. The last person to have any contact with him happens to be his agent, who was none other than the crazy axe guy from moments before. Dun, dun, dun. Shocking. Must have needed to ax him a question. All right, uh, perhaps it's time for another ritual cleansing of uh, capitalism. Uh, we shall all get out the tools and... Uh... I, you know what I was thinking? Uh... Oh, oh, no, we haven't talked about brother. Yeah. Hey, did someone mention me? 
yes, uh, Brother Methuselah, it's time for your um, cleansing bath of capitalism. It's kind of like a mosquito dip. All right, grab him. Oh, goodness, he's got oh. his teeth are coming out in the bite. Oh. 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 You got me again. Damn it, I'm going to need a rabies shot again. I regret uh, nothing. <laughs> I don't think he has rabies. He may have one rabies, but not the entire set. Got to catch them all. Are we I ready see. for the bath? I brought the toaster. <laughs> <laughs> How shocking. Brother Zachariah, shut the door on sponsorship. It turns out that reading Sutter Kane's books can make you a little twitchy. Sam reckons this is all nonsense and resolves to find Sutter Kane. Sam is a total cynical bastard, and Styles suggests that if he wants to get a handle on Kane, he should read some of the books. Sam agrees, but only because he's totally into her. It's actually a little bit gross how he is all, why don't we discuss it after work? Fortunately, Styles is a replicant ice queen and never stops working. This moment was actually, um, from our perspective now, looking at it in 2022, it felt a little um, uh, contrived, but I mean, this kind of sexual harassment, you know, was something that happened. Didn't Michael Crichton write a book about it that got made into a movie? Yeah, it was obviously creepy and weird. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, it was, it was gross. Well, here's where we see Sam at his best as an investigator. He gets hold of all the Sutter Kane novels he can in the independent bookstore of madness and just starts reading. But things begin to get odd. Sam starts bumping into odd looking people. And I mean, just off the boat from hell, odd looking. He has a repeating vision of a cop beating someone up in an alley. And each time the vision repeats, things get more slimy. However, it's worth it because he makes a breakthrough. You see, on each of Kane's books, there is a squiggly red line as part of the cover art. Sam cuts the covers off the books and rearranges them. The lines meet up. In a rather unfathomable leap of deduction, Sam realizes that they form a map. And in a truly mind-boggling bit of puzzle solving, he finds a spot in New Hampshire where that map points to. There yeah, isn't this is that moment in the in the D and D game where like the players are just not getting it. So the GM is like, "Okay, guys, just go here." <laughs> <laughs> and then you trip over. You have tripped over a scroll. It is a map. But it's interesting <laughs> that they <laughs> interesting that they picked New Hampshire because H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was Rhode Island and uh, Stephen King was Maine. So, of course, this has to be set in New England somewhere. Well, they split yeah, the difference between If them. you put push pins into all of those locations on a map and put red string around them in just the right way, it doesn't make anything at all, but it's a cool hobby. <laughs> <laughs> well, there isn't supposed to be any town there, but Sam wants to see for himself. Charlton Heston agrees and sends Styles along to go with him, you know, for backup or something. Well, you know, those replicants are actually like superhumanly strong. Yeah, and apparently she just goes wherever he sends her without question or complaint because it's the 90s. 
It's like yeah. my buddy. My buddy, wherever I go. My kick, murder squad, replicant. More human than human is our motto. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not quite all the way there yet. She's just a little bit uncanny valley. Uh, not quite Nexus 6 level. Yeah, that's more a really internet explorer thing to say about that actor. Who played Styles again? Oh, it was the same actress who played the uh, lieutenant commander on Babylon 5. Oh, shit. Her name, yeah. I have it down here, Carmen, Julie Carmen. Yep. Now, to be fair, she's not doing a bad performance. Her character is deliberately written to be a bit weird and unsettling, but she does come across as distinctly odd in places. It's, okay, part of it is like they always have her in that like bright white suit and stuff, which is just like, you know, really makes her just like shine out. But mm. I think that's a deliberate device to make her just like seem like a guiding light, if you will. I didn't write it. <laughs> oh, did she? That yes. was completely unintentional. I mean, that was completely intentional. <clears throat> <clears throat> anyway. Sam believes that the town Sutter Kane keeps writing about, Hobbs End, is in fact a real place, and they're going to find it. The journey starts out normally enough, and in an amusing diversion, Styles falls asleep in the car, and <laughs> get this, Sam produces, and I shit you not, an old-timey comedy clown horn from his glove box and honks it at her. What the hell, Sam? What else do you have in there? What do you do with the rest of the clown? Silent Green? It just comes out of nowhere. He just has a, a random glove box full of weird vaudeville bits. You don't? That's where I keep the aristocrats. Mine is just filled with hitchhiker ears. <laughs> but, like, it never comes back. There's no other sign of his sense of humor. It's just, yeah, he's not, he's not pranking people. He doesn't sort of have bits that he pulls here and there. It's just this one time. Oh, he did, do, he did make a joke. Or earlier on, he said that the uh, agent, uh, that Sutter Kane could find better representation than the agent axe murderer. Yeah, right. but he didn't follow it up with a custard pie to the face. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Perhaps this is a rotating bow tie or something. Running from the mob later in big oversized clown shoes. Like, <laughs> it wasn't actually a, a, a joke or a prank for him at all, but like basically his version of a pet corrector. <laughs> Perhaps this was uh, John Carpenter telling us that Sam Neill is a jive-ass honky. John Carpenter didn't write this script, though. He was brought on to, as a director. That does explain some of the weirder choices that get oh. made. So, anyways, he was going to Hobbs End after he passed Castle Rock and drove through Shermer, Illinois, right? One can only imagine. Oh, and Derry. Uh, Derry, Maine. That's near Gotham, Tim right? Curry on the way. The trip gets weirder than that, though. Night falls, Styles is driving by now, and she passes a boy on a bike, but only to pass the same boy again moments later, but this time he's become a wrinkled old man. The third time he shows up, she isn't paying any attention and straight up mows the creepy bastard down. They get out to check on their vehicular assault victim, and the old man moans something about he can't leave. It's like he's been stuck on that same bike ride for years. When they turn away for a moment, he's gone. Oh, well, no need to trouble the police or anything. Onward we go. They do go on, and the car passes into the traditional covered bridge of madness where weird lights flash and things get bumpy. 
When they emerge, it is suddenly bright daylight and they have arrived in Hobbs End, a town which appears on no map and is supposed to be fictional. I was surprised after they went through that tunnel, they didn't wind up in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. It did I was have surprised a little... they didn't end up in the afterlife with the people from Beetlejuice. <laughs> I mean, the, the effects they, they chose to use for that sequence going through a bridge, it was a little bit Gene Wilder on the boat, wasn't it? There's no way of knowing which way that we are going. Yeah, very much so. That's what the clown horn is for, is to scare away the Oompa Loompas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have to do it before they start singing, because then they never shut up and then someone dies. Uh, everyone knows really that the common, uh, you know, risk that you run as an insurance investigator, a freelance insurance investigator is Oompa Loompas ruining your investigation. Oompa so Loompa attacks, yeah. <laughs> everyone knows that the clown horn is the sound of the natural predator of the Oompa Loompa. Clowns. So, <laughs> clowns. <Yeah. laughs> Carnival clowns from outer space. The killer clowns from outer space, which was filmed in my hometown, by the way. So. And yet still, yeah. nobody takes Lumpaside seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no one's mentioned the crime of defacing several book covers. Maybe that's why he went insane. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, stripping a book. That, uh, that, that is a crime, isn't it? It's his book. He can choose to do whatever crazy fetishy thing he wants to. Not I mean, here in America. Are we going to live in a world it. where a man can't do any weird freakish thing he wants to his own library? That's not a world I want to live in. Well, look, what, whatever goes on between <laughs> consenting book and uh, the person reading it is entirely between them. Mine are all leather bound. <laughs> oh, goodness. Of course they would be, wouldn't they? Come on, Daniel. I'm tired. Don't call it that. It's typing. Uh, uh, what the hell? Maybe it is time for a little bug powder. Just to take the edge off. Uh, come back next time for the thrilling conclusion of Madness. Who are you talking to? <laughs> oh, shut up. They call me mad. Mad! But I knew we had to go on. We were only halfway through the movie, after all, and things were finally starting to get all freaky. That's right, Danny boy. Type dirty on me. Okay, you promised you wouldn't make it weird. Anyway, after finding the fictional town of Hobbs End to be real, Sam Neill was determined to get right to the bottom of everything. The bottom of madness! Welcome back, fellow Inquisitors. Shall we pick up with where we left off? With In the Mouth of Madness, everyone's favorite movie, right? Yay, I love this film. I love this film better than I love peanut butter, and every one of you knows that peanut butter is my favorite food. Well, I, for one, support all of Daniel's choices. Exactly. I think we should get started. Professor Andrea, would you care to... Elaborate and illuminate us on Act Two. I would be delighted. It looks like a rather charming slice of small town America, except that it's totally deserted and occasionally creepy children of the corn appear and disappear. 
And sometimes there's freaky dogs watching you. Frankly, it's a Stephen King fan's dream. Sam decides to check into the delightful colonial-style guest house of madness for their stay. The only staff member is a creepy old lady, which is pretty standard in this kind of place. And Styles starts to notice something odd. It's almost like it's an Airbnb. <laughs> Everything seems exactly the way the town is described in the Sutter Kane books. Not only that but a creepy painting she notices seems to be moving. When she mentions this to Sam Neill, he basically thinks she's a bit of a nut. He is in no way willing to accept that anything untoward is going on at all. Yeah, way to mansplain art to her. Oh yes, no, he certainly mansplains. It uh, does not appear that there's a well actually in the painting, but as the painting changes, I think one does appear. <laughs> so wait, if you're mansplaining reality, does that make it gaslighting? Yeah. <laughs> well played. Just checking. Here's where we get to the major theme of the film. Sam Neill insists that this is reality, not something out of a book. He believes in what is real. Styles is already willing to consider that maybe what Sutter Kane wrote about wasn't all fiction. Somewhat proving the point, she shows Sam a giant freaky old church in the middle of town, just like Sutter Kane wrote about. So Sam is confused whether this life or whether it's just fantasy was he caught in a landslide with no escape from this reality he just needs to open his eyes look up to the skies and see i'm warning you and then brother zacharias stopped quoting lyric now that was an actual church the cathedral of the transfiguration is in toronto the, uh, the Canadian city of Markham, actually, just north of Toronto. It's a real place, and it, it is the one of the weirdest-looking churches, but they did get a real place for the film. This It looks like it's a set or a miniature or a model or something, but no, it's a real thing. So wait, are you saying that Sutter Kane wrote Toronto? <laughs> yes. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So the, this small town had a large open field outside of town, and they just thought, you know what that needs? Right there in the middle of nowhere, a gigantic gothic church filled with horrible imagery. And onion domes. Fucking onion domes. Well, Markham does rhyme with Arkham. Oh, God. Oh, you're right. Oh, yes. No. I had not put that together. I mean, I'm a bad H.P. Lovecraft fan. Thank you. Oh, God. I, and and I, they decided you know, to check it out. In the Kane book, this church is a seat of some horrible, malevolent cosmic power. You know, freakish, betentacled horrors just waiting to invade our reality. The whole deal. The weird happenings continue to happen, weirdly. The bunch of weird kids run past, and then a group of enraged farmer types with guns arrive to remonstrate. They appear to believe that Cain is in the church, and that he has stolen one of their kids, which is not the sort of thing that is really acceptable in the community. Also not your standard writer behavior. Not really, no. Suddenly, in the church doorway, Sutter Kane himself appears, and it seems that he can summon angry dogs at will because a load of them appear and attack the locals. This isn't what you'd call a warm and friendly church, more the abandon all hope be sinners kind of thing. No, it was more uh. of a Mr. Burns kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> After all that whole bunch of nonsense, Sam is furious. Back at the hotel, he insists that this all has to be an elaborate hoax, and Styles admits it. This was supposed to be a publicity stunt, but it's gone wrong. There was never supposed to be any of this eldritch nonsense. When is there the ever, really, though? 
That's why she's so convinced that something greater is going on. No less than the end of the world, Justice Sutter Kane wrote it. Surely the answers are in the missing new manuscript. Sam Neill is not having any of this bullshit, of course, and is going to get out there and find some answers. So that does explain it. I was wondering earlier, it's like, okay, of all the characters to be like, wait a minute, reality is warped, crazy bullshit's going on. Like Styles is so cold and logical and, well, she's a replicant, right? <sighs> that like of all the people to be like, hey, something supernatural might be going on here. It's like, really, her? But she knows what the fraud is supposed to be and it's not going according to that plan. Then she's like, wait a minute, I haven't controlled this. So she's actually a control freak is where I'm going with this. So uh, yeah, that's- That that's... reminds me of a joke, knock, knock. Who's there? Control freak. Now you say control freak who? Control freak who? <laughs> I don't get it. Now let me see if I can explain it to you. And then Brother Zachariah got it. Ah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Master of the door over here. Can't handle a knock knock joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a knob kind of guy. Uh, well then. So he goes downstairs and he too, finally, now notices that the freaky painting from before has changed. The man and woman in the picture now have scary, distorted faces. And there's no way around this. It sort of looks like she's giving him a snaky hand job just from the angle it's painted at. It's totally accidental, but once you see it, you just can't look away. It's right there. It's sort of like the Mona Lisa's eyes. It follows you around the room. <laughs> you seriously <laughs> almost made me do a spit take with that. I had exactly the same experience with uh, Nikki the Star jobs. Trek. No, no, no. <laughs> yes, kind of, kind of. This, uh, Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Okay, I'm going to ruin this movie for all of you. Thank so you. the scene at the very end you know, where Spock goes into the reactor chamber, spoiler alerts, uh -huh. um, and Kirk is like, no, my friend, and like all the ensigns have to hold him back. Watch it again. One of the ensigns has grabbed him right around the waist with his head down. So it absolutely looks like he's giving like Kirk a, like a comfort hummer right then and there, <laughs> like to, to alleviate him from the loss and grief of losing his friend, right? No, seriously, it is, and it's this kind of, Everybody thinks it's the best scene in all of Star Trek ever, right? But now you're going to watch it again, and it's fucking ruined. <laughs> Brother Daniel, you, you've introduced us to some horrifying flights of fantasy and phantasmagoria in your time in this society, but that's really up there. <laughs> you're welcome. I thought you were going to say something about uh, sounding involving CT eels, but... Um... No, that's well, no, you know, no, you've exceeded that. Starfleet might be in space, but it is technically still the Navy, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Hold on. Someone at the door. Uh, it's an ad break. Tell them we don't want any. We don't want any of your revenue. We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. No, that. no, no. We never voted on that. Okay, that I've made the ad break go away. 
It did leave a big bag of money on the door for all of you profiteering capitalist pig dogs. And no one noticed when Inquisitor Daniel pockets all the ad revenue to buy more bug powder for his favorite typewriter. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Clark Nova? I think you've got a problem, and I like the way you think. <laughs> Sam tells the freaky old lady he's going out, and she's behaving even more freaky than normal, and almost looks like there's something going on under the counter where she's standing. Styles rushes out and steals the car, which distracts Sam. So he never notices that the freaky old woman has, for reasons which are unclear, a groaning naked man handcuffed to her ankle. Shit, it's like one of those hotels. Like I said, Airbnb. She's living her best life, man. <laughs> but is he? Could be worse. It could be hostile. Uh, it's one of those hotels where you don't ask questions and don't make eye contact. And don't hit anything with the black light. Sam has just about had it with all of this nonsense and goes for a walk. It's night and he's trying to put it all together in his head. He's still sure this is all some kind of trick. He goes into the quaint local bar of madness for a beer. And in walks one of those angry mob of farmers from before. But the guy is looking kind of scratched up, you know, from all the dogs. He relates that Kane has let something out which took the kids first and is now working on everyone else. Sam still isn't buying it. And you know who that guy is? The farmer. He's the warlock. It's Vigo. none other than Wilhelm von Homburg himself. Oh! Oh my God. <laughs> Ghostbusters, Vigo. Ghostbusters yeah, the, 2. The right. painting from Ghostbusters 2. That's him. And oh. he's, uh, he's, he's a story in and of himself. But that's a story for another time. Cut to the creepy church, and Styles is walking up. Apparently, she's decided to go and see Sutter Kane for herself. She has a brief interlude with a crowd of creepy kids, who by now are looking quite slimy and hellish. I don't know about interlude. That's more like an interobscenity. <laughs> oh, come on. That's reaching. Bird play. <laughs> around. Oh, reaching around. <laughs> like an you both ensign. reached around and you shook hands at the back. <laughs> reaching around harder than an ensign around Captain Kirk. <laughs> Pretty much. Sorry, please do continue. They have that whole creepy supernatural vibe, which kids pull off so effortlessly. The church is about as welcoming as any Byzantine structure lit with actual burning torches. Wait, no, flamethrowers. In wall sconces always tends to be. Inside, Sutter Kane is waiting, typing away at a desk next to a creepy dog. They do say you should set aside personal space to do your writing. And for Sutter Kane, that space is the basement of an abandoned satanic nexus of unfathomable evil. He's pretty relaxed about it all. From what I hear, this is uh, the same writing environment that Anne Rice likes. <laughs> Liked, past tense. Sutter Kane shows Styles a creepy, pulsating wooden door, which appears weirdly sweaty, and claims that the creatures beyond had been telling him what to write all this time and giving him the power to make it all real. That's nice of them. By this point, Styles is looking a little hypnotized by the raw sexual magnetism of Jürgen Prochnow in a chunky 90s turtleneck sweater. He shows her the manuscript and it glows with raw power, forcing her to see flashes of weird violence, just like Sam Neill did in the prologue. Styles well, is past his prologue. 
<laughs> you son of a bitch. Styles is totally on board with whatever his deal is now and caresses him. From behind, we see the back of Jorgen's neck is turned into a mass of slimy eldritch tumors and whatnot. Some with actual faces. Don't worry, that will neither be nor explained or ever referenced again. In the hotel, Sam is starting to lose his grip. First, Styles arrives completely mashed out of her gourd and ranting. Then the weird painting is changed again to just show a mass of tentacles where a delightfully hellish handjob was once taking place. <laughs> Taking a look around, he goes into the creepy cellar of madness. After hearing weird noises, and the freakish lady from before has gone all naked lunch with tentacles and slime and so forth, Sam departs expediently wanting none of that whole deal. I mean, who would, really? I wonder if they remembered what their, you know, safe word was. Was it tentacles? Was it madness? <laughs> Back in his room, when he discovers the styles is having a tentacle fiesta in the bathroom, which is certainly odd. <laughs> tentacle that... fiesta? I guess. Yes. <laughs> like with, with a mariachi band. That's what's <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. And when she emerges, she punches him through a door, which, to be honest, he's probably had coming for a while. <laughs> As he flees the hotel, we see in the background that something horrible and tentacly has developed in the greenhouse. Apparently, this too is referenced in one of the novels, but the greenhouse unpleasantness by Sutter Kane won't be otherwise featuring in this movie. What a waste. It was a beautiful monster. You see it for a flash, and then it's gone, and that's it. What a terrible title to a book. <laughs> the greenhouse of unpleasantness. <laughs> Right next to the gazebo of uncertainty. He is starting to consider getting out of this town. The people here have started to go strange. Which is kind of a thing because, you know, he starts out the film looking for strange. And now oh, he decides to go. In the, in the street, there are gatherings of various mutants going about their business. A woman runs past him. She looks like someone has literally slapped the grin off her face and she's got an axe. She pauses to say, fuck you, and runs off to whatever she's getting up to. It's like Detroit with better town planning. <laughs> <laughs> and charming covered bridges. <laughs> better water supply. Sam flees into the bar from before, and the farmer is still there, but he's torn up and bleeding. He claims that he can't remember what came first, the town folk or the book. Everything here has become a Sutter Kane story. He's literally slumped over with blood running down his face, and Sam Neill still tries to insist that they're all playing an elaborate hoax. He's really sticking to his guns. Unfortunately, so is the farmer, who puts a shotgun under his chin and apologizes that this is just the way he's written before blowing his head off. There's a lot of gore in this picture, but weirdly, they don't actually show that part. Budget run out. This is surprisingly decent acting from someone who really only acts about as well as the painting. There's only one thing left to do, and that's to get out of Dodge. Sam spots Siles outside, acting all freaky-deaky and resolves that situation without a second thought by punching her into a grill bonus and bundling her into their car. <laughs> classy Sam Neil, Real classy. But what would you expect from Damien? After a nifty bit of hot wiring, they're away. Hot wiring, you say? Do you expect us to believe that an insurance investigator would know how to hotwire a car? Not only that, but to just pick up a screwdriver and somehow jam that into the keyhole and get the car working. Well, it is the 90s. Roaring off into the night on the road out of town, Styles suddenly tries to kiss him. 
She claims it's what Kane has written for her. It's simply what the readers want. She has literally become a plot device. Pulling to a halt, Sam gets out. This is the spot where they hit the guy on the bike before. Styles does a freaky reverse crab walk thing out of the car and a rather nifty bit of practical effects work spins her own head upside down. It's kind of gross, but she sure is flexible. It's a shame Sam Neill is such a creep in this picture. Yeah, this was for me like probably one of the freakiest bits in the film is when she just turned her head around like that. Yeah, was not expecting that. <laughs> they actually hired a contortionist to do this part of the film and had her wear a mask of the actress's face. Oh, damn. On her head. Oh, I man. mean, um, you've just got to uh, think of the possibilities. You got to remember <laughs> your safe word. Well, no, the, uh, the, the interesting thing is like, I mean, this is clearly a ripoff of The Exorcist, you know, the whole spinning the head around trope, which The Exorcist set. And what's, what's funny about that is you wonder like, okay, how did they get that gag? Well, they had, uh, I know this isn't, this is, uh, I'm going to make a j- something about The Exorcist and not about this, but in relation to this, I think you guys might find this kind of funny. I read that apparently they made this, um, animatronic doll where they had the head spin around on an axis. They had, they had it on a rheostat, but they wanted to make sure that it would be actually scary. So they went out to a Georgetown street and they set the doll in the back of the car and the effects guy laid on the floor with the rheostat. And anytime somebody came walking by the car, he would start turning it. So the head would track whoever's walking by. And just when they started to pass it, he'd crank the rheostat up. So the head would start to spin. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love special effects guys. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, so so uh, Professor Andrea. So wait, so now the um, the contortionist. So the contortionist was actually able to turn their head like that, and they just put it. No, um, the contortionist did the crab walking, but they had a mask of the actress's face. Oh, she wore okay. on the other side of her head, but she couldn't see, so she had to be guided by sound. Oh, <laughs> like sonar this your crab. This way, dear crab. Spider crab. Spider crab. There's only so many ways for a contortionist to get into the movie industry, you know, and this happens to be one of them. So, all right, all right, take us away, Professor Andrea. Sam has reached the limits of chivalry and gets the fuck out of there without her. He's on the road straight out of town now, but no matter where he goes, the road changes and brings him straight back into town and the waiting crowd of flesh mutants gathered there. He even passes bicycle guy again, and this time Styles is riding on the back trying to look creepy while an old man essentially chauffeurs her around on a kid's bike. Good effort, Styles. Somehow I don't think this film will pass the Bechtel test. No. <laughs> Clearly this isn't going to work. So Sam Neill decides that if this town is going to go all Detroit on him, he'll play Robocop and drive straight through all the flesh meat. You can actually see the moment when Sam thinks to himself, I'm going to run down some motherfuckers tonight, and it's masterful. <laughs> Beautiful piece of acting. You remember that scene in RoboCop when RoboCop shot that guy in the dick? <laughs> I think we all know that. Yeah. Good times. Unfortunately, he spots Styles in the crowd and in the one moment in the movie that Sam Neill reconsiders assaulting a woman, at every opportunity, he swerves and crashes. Things were starting to get crazy. There were flesh lumps, tentacles, and screaming. Oh, what screaming? I could barely hear the movie, which was also getting quite strange by this point. You need to gain some perspective, Daniel. You need to put things in their proper place. 
place. You know what the proper place to put bug powder is. Don't say it. It's your in the mouth of madness, Danny boy. <laughs> Inquisitors of the Cinemania Society, brethren and sistren, and all of the Thank above. You. Um, Brother Zachariah, guardian you. of the door, do you want to take it away? Explain to us the final act of this wonderful movie. This is a wonderful movie, and I would love to. Sam wakes up in an old school confessional box. How did he get there? We don't know. Maybe they assembled a porta confessional. That could be what the woman with the axe was up to. Anyways, <laughs> Sutter Kane is playing the part of a priest here and enjoys a long rant about eldritch nightmares from beyond and the ways of religion has failed to understand and the anatomy of horror. You know, the usual Sunday school stuff. My rabbi used to talk about this all the time. Oh, yeah. He had an awesome <laughs> rabbi. <laughs> Yeah, Leviathan, 538, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, most importantly, he reveals the plan. You see, if a critical mass of people start to see reality the way he sees it, then the world itself will start to agree with him. It's an interesting thought experiment, but it does rather depend on the idea that cheap paperback horror novels have the power to inspire deep personal revelation. And if you're on board with that thought, then maybe you're Sutter Kane. Think about it. Eh? Eh? Clever. Eh? Eh? Postmodernism. <laughs> the book. <laughs> oh, I, I have some thoughts about this, but I'll reveal them when we get to judgment. Postmodernism. Uh, the board game. <laughs> the author. Postmodernism. The flamethrower. This was actually a really interesting tangent. They went off on this for several minutes. Yeah, I think this was like what the guy who was smoking, you know, and then decided to write, like got into his brain and then went, oh, this would make a great script. This really awesome. reminds me of that meme, you know, the one that has uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger. Don't eat that Pooh, you're eating recursion. Postmodernism in the, what is it? Oh, shit. Damn it, that joke would have worked better if I remembered what uh, postmodernism is. No, no, it's shush. I know what postmodernism <laughs> is. Is it called Ten Acre Woods or something? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, Consider yourselves again. blessed for not having to take a postmodernism class. I practically majored in postmodernism. I love that <laughs> shit. Sam Neill is still, still bravely trying to say it's all a con. Sutter Kane takes him to his special little writing nook and gives him the finished manuscript. Because it, it's <laughs> the full manuscript. Because it's time for Sam to do the job he came here to do. hey He reveals the final horror. hey Sam Neill is a character in the book, too. Sutter Kane wrote him for one purpose. To bring the manuscript back to the publisher. And so spread this weirdness into the world at large. Now, to be fair. The entire postal service exists to do exactly this kind of job much more effectively. But Sutter Kane prefers the personal touch. He even handwrites his manuscripts on a typewriter. What a pretentious dick. 
writing on a typewriter. I mean, anyone who uses a typewriter <laughs> has to be the hugest prick. Anyhow, Sam refuses to go along with all of this, and Sutter Kane finds that delightful. I mean, think about it. A freelance insurance investigator? How would that even work as a business model? The threads of Sam's life comes apart like a cheap jumper in the claws of an angry toddler. Okay, yes, I get your point, Clark. Very funny. Now stop writing my fucking story. I'm just trying to make you see the world for what it is. Everything that's taken place has been Sutter Kane's writing all along. Sam doesn't believe it. But then maybe that's just because he was written not to believe it. But maybe that's just what Sutter Kane wants him to think. But maybe he only thinks that because the eldritch horrors wanted him to write that Sam would think he would believe that, oh, my fucking head hurts. Okay. A long tunnel has appeared, and Kane says it leads back to our world. The sweaty door is pulsating strongly, and Sutter Kane cannot hold them back any longer. In one of the most visually striking shots, Kane appears to tear the scene open, tearing reality like a sheet of paper and leaving a gaping void where the door and he just stood. In fact, it's literally paper where the edges fold over. We see printed words, the words of the very movie. Beyond the tear is darkness, and there's something horrible in it. Sam runs as they start to come through. He is being chased by horrible, moist, tentacle-bearing, slimy, nasty things. I have seen the future, and it glistens damply. Sam falls over while running, which is what you get for insisting on looking cool with a cigarette while investigating all that fraud. And he wakes up in broad daylight outside. The tunnel has indeed led back into the real world. Sam has no problem hitching a lift, and he's chucked that manuscript away. I'm sorry, but that just is, stretches my suspension of disbelief to the breaking point that Sam Neill would be able to hitchhike that easily. <laughs> it was the 80s. As if no one else had ever seen The Omen 2. All right. <laughs> he that winds up in a cheap... 90s. You're telling me if you saw Sam Neill hitchhiking on the side of the road, you wouldn't pick him up. In 1995. In 1995. Yeah, no. Yeah, 94, 94, 94. Was still yeah. the early 90s, which actually are just a giant mass hallucination of the front <laughs> of the lady. So, like, yeah. it didn't actually happen. We all know this, right? I'm you'd aware. hit the gas and you'd keep on pressing until the carpet crunched. Hey, I actually managed to hitchhike well into the 2000s. And you turned out fine. And I'm no Sam Neill in the looks department. That's all I'm saying. Well, that doesn't explain the tinfoil pheasant. Well, I wasn't wearing it back then. I hadn't seen this movie yet. He winds up in a cheap motel, and it does not seem like things are getting back to normal a bit. However, the skinny teen at the front desk tells him a package has arrived for him. And wouldn't you know, it's the manuscript. See, Sutter Kane knows how to use the post like a goddamn normal person when he wants to. Sam decides to threaten the kid, demanding to know who brought the package. The kid's large, angry, the kid's large, angry father steps out of the office, and Sam decides to stop with the threatening, like a real man. So after burning the manuscript this time, 
Sam hops on the Greyhound style bus. He's stuck next to some old bat who wants to tell him about Depression era New York, where bodies were stacked two, three feet off the curb. Suffering something of a depression era on this long-ass bus ride, Sam nods off and dreams that Sutter Kane is there. Sutter Kane isn't angry. He's just disappointed. He just wants Sam to understand that he's become the new god now. So that's nice. In another interesting visual, he mentions to Sam, did I ever tell you my favorite color is blue? And when Sam jerks awake suddenly, everything is massively color-graded blue. It's a neat touch that really works, and Sam screams his head off, but then he wakes up again. It was a nightmare within a dream. Regardless, Dream Kane has made his point. And this is a great rehash of of an old horror movie trope. They do this joke a couple of times where he wakes up from a nightmare, and then that's also a dream. So the dream within a dream, within a story, within a story. Oh, the the jump scare, but you're still dreaming. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know how many deep we've gone. The kids kids in the hall made a whole like sketch about that. Yeah, I feel like we need to have like a counter we can show people of like, this is how many levels in we are at the moment. (laughs) You had the peanut butter dream again. Yes, we are doomed. Sam looks up the town of Hobbs Inn at some kind of information bureau and is told rather rudely, I might add, that there was never, ever, 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 ever any town by that name. In worse news, he goes to the publishers to try to prevent the book being released, only to be told that he had given them the manuscript months ago. It's already out. Furthermore, Charlton Heston has now never heard of Styles, his replicant secretary. Sam is upset. He had come to quite like her. She's not a replicant. She's made of people. Made of people. Charlton Heston fans will get that joke. All right. Not only is the book out, a movie is going to be made. And Sam basically spirals from this point. The book is a massive hit. There's a queue around the block at his local bookshop. Remember, this is the 90s. And in a final insult, the cover even has his face on it. Sam confronts a harmless book-loving member of the public and straight up axe murders him. I guess just because the nice man is bleeding from the eyes that have one extra pupil than they should, creepy though it may be, Polycaria is a disability. Google it. Nice one, Sam. I don't know that I believe that that a bookstore would have a line out and around the block. I just don't know that I'd buy that. Okay, so you got to remember, A, this was in the 90s, but B, I worked in a bookstore for like four years. I can absolutely confirm this for anything Nora Roberts or or J.K. Rowling related, including the axe murders. Total, total buy it. I actually remember waiting in line at bookstores during that time, uh, mainly to get autographs. I did get Anne Rice's autograph on a uh, copy of one of her books when it released. Oh, God, those were the worst. Those were I the believe worst. it. Well, no, second worst. Though. The first worst <laughs> was when folks would come up and say, hey, I'm looking for a book. I don't remember the title or the author. I remember I had a blue cover. Yeah, right <laughs> over here. This is our books. <laughs> In a world where you can just have anything you want delivered with a click of a mouse, it's that little thing that really dates this film, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) The books. (laughs) As far as Sam's concerned, it's all coming to pass. The world is going to be insane, and he's one of the last normal people left. We're back at the padded sale now, and Sam has just finished telling his story. It's all too late now. Outside things are only going to get worse and worse. The therapist politely takes his leave. That night, it all kicks off. 
We don't see exactly what happens, but there are screams and blood, and Sam is able to walk right out of his cell. Some creature has conveniently hacked the lock off. There's no one around. He heads straight out of the asylum. Lacking anything better to do, he wanders into the cinema, showing the latest hit, In the Mouth of Madness, starring him. And also note that on the movie poster you see outside the film, it even says a film by John Carpenter. <laughs> nice touch. So they don't just say the title of the movie in the movie. They say that the name of the movie's director in the movie. That had to be rough because they had to come up with the movie poster while they were making the movie. You usually well, don't the movie do that until afterwards. The movie posters in the film is totally different from the movie poster on the cover. Of the oh, movie. is it? Yeah, okay. completely All different. Right. Uh, also, well. when he's picking at that movie poster in the earlier part of the film, there's a tear. And when he pulls it all the way off at the end, it's his face also in the that's, poster. That's right. That's right. Alone, Sam Neill sits back and enjoys the movie. A lot more than I did. We see flashes of what has come before. And they were right. They made a movie of the book straight away. And it all happened like Sutter Kane wrote it. Sam just starts to laugh and laugh, and we roll credits. <laughs> but I still don't get it. Oh, look, it's simple. Boy meets publishing company. Company makes boy hang out with girl. Writer becomes God. Girl becomes fiction. Boy becomes messianic tool of the apocalypse. Writer wears a fetching turtleneck. Boy witnesses the end of the world and laughs and laughs. It's simple. Oh, right. Right in front of me. <laughs> it's a story that's been told a thousand times. Hell is all this time. Sorry, the turtleneck bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, God, my fingers are killing me. This is, uh, this is getting way too far. All right, so then the conclave went to judgment. Judgment with the, Does judgment have an E in the To judgment. Why not? But if it's time for us to go to judgment, then uh, I have some thoughts I'd like to share. So it's clear that Sutter Kane is a shitty author. Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Like this I mean, guy. The turtleneck alone proves it. I think they're definitely making a dig at Stephen King here. From the snatches of prose we hear in the dialogue, all the pat horror devices we see used all over Hobbes End, all the lazy storytelling tropes, uh, chief among them, the vast yet vague yet evil that exists without any goal or method, but still somehow infects the town and its people, making them evil. Um, Kane's not a spectacularly shitty author, though, which would be its own special kind of entertaining. Um, but, you know, he's a lazy, mediocre hack. If it weren't for people going insane and bleeding from the eyes, there'd be absolutely nothing special about Kane's writing whatsoever. Um, <laughs> and like I said, while this representation of Kane is almost certainly a dig at Stephen King, it's it's possible that John Carpenter could be using the character's mediocrity to be making a subtle joke, commenting on the banality of evil. I mean, we all know Carpenter's a smart guy. Um, but even if he's making that comment, there are so many other things going on in this film all at the same time that any subtle observation like that gets completely lost in the noise. To that, like, the mediocrity of Sutter Kane's writing, the acknowledged mediocrity of it, is in fact a commentary um, it may not just be on the banality of evil, but also kind of the, the repetitiveness and banality of the way we 
imagine evil and we imagine it as these like monsters and this and that as opposed to what evil generally really is in the world right yeah i mean when uh, when sam neil says oh he's just a hack horror writer to the publishers they don't argue that they say yeah yeah but he sells tons of books that's all right. they care about yeah Nobody i mean that- minds that he's bad yeah, I mean, right. this is this predates the whole like Twilight series, but oh my god, talk about something that was super popular that was just horribly written, man. I mean, the only reason that first book was like over a hundred pages was because they increased the type size. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I I I did like you know at one point I'm like, well, this is super popular. Maybe there's something to it. I tried to pick up a book. I couldn't get past the first freaking chapter because I'm just like, this, this isn't writing. This is a travesty. <laughs> this is, that's what you're basically saying. It's like the Wheel of Time series. No, the Wheel of Time series, at least, you know, there was some prose and there was a lot of wheel, bu- there was wheel a, building. There was a lot building, of prose. Yeah. <laughs> there was a but, lot uh, of prose. I mean, that it is wasn't just, good prose. That was just too wording, the, too much wording. This was like Twilight is on the level like it's not even written at a fifth grade level. It, it, it's horrible. <laughs> well, yeah. what I'm getting at with this is that this movie is so unwieldy and so scattershot because the idea is so big and it's so big that it's basically impossible to execute, even for somebody who's such an accomplished storyteller as John Carpenter. Um, in essence, these points, he, he wants to make these points, but they, he, he, because of the film's runtime, he has to make them in such sketchy, impressionistic ways that they really only barely hint at the depth that's behind them. And yeah. they come so thick and fast, one right after the other, right after the other, appearing alongside other genre references uh, that they're also trying to wedge in their references to Stephen King books and movies and scenes that, that basically the overall plot becomes really hard to distinguish. Um, and so for me, it was hard to tell whether the creator was being serious or was actually making fun of the genre or making fun of the people who take it seriously or both. Um, so at the end of the film, I'm left wondering whether this movie is a frustrating attempt at meta horror that's so far up its own ass that it's become a singularity or whether it's genius level satire. Um, <laughs> I would it, say both. In yeah. the mouth of Matt, it's, it's a postmodernism. I think, I it's think a, that maybe the writer meant it to be like, you know, this big, deep thing, but John Carpenter took it and just went, nah, we're going to have to make this satire because I can't fucking pull that off on this budget. Well, <laughs> see, the movie is a hacky horror ripoff of Stephen King's hacky horror ripoff of H.P. Lovecraft's hacky horror ripoff of Edgar Allan Poe's hacky horror ripoff of moody gothic French poet Baudelaire. Each successive generation is a poorer quality than the last because it feeds primarily upon the previous generation and go far enough down this recursive rabbit hole and eventually you end up with the human centipede. <laughs> Speaking of the human centipede, you might say that John Carpenter predicted that piece of hokum here because in contemplating this film, we see each generation's mouth of madness sewn to the ass of madness of the preceding generation with us, the audience, as the last link in the chain, swallowing Baudelaire's shit after it's been recycled through four previous generations. <laughs> you know, I take it back. This film is a piece of genius level satire (laughs) okay well let me ask you this is the film following the wrong person because this isn't really sam neill's story this is such a gain story we just happen to be viewing it through the eyes of some insurance investigator who's only really touching the edges of what's really going on we should really be looking at the film about sutter kane it's uh, it's all about him and what he's getting up to. And that would have been a real film with real, real important no, stuff. Happening. No, no, no. Disagree. 
disagree. Uh, I don't know. Another movie about a writer. I mean, come on. Uh, No, no. no. So here's where I disagree. So this movie is about Sam Neill in the same way that Blade Runner is about Harrison Ford. Okay. Um, This actually, talking from the uh, character concept of like a character in a story, knowing that it's a story. um, I know you're all familiar with uh, Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead Mm -hmm. and Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, right? Of course. Yes, of course. You're all well-read. This kind of uh, meta, like being stuck as a character in someone else's story, and you cannot, for the life of you, no matter what you do, change the outcome, is a lot better told in these other two stories. Like, for instance, Guildenstern once said, wheels have been set in motion. They have their own pace to which we are condemned. Each move is dictated by the previous one, and that is the meaning of order. If we start being arbitrary, it'll all just be shambles. You know, and it's what Sam Neill is doing. It's all shambles because he is trying to knock things out of order, but it's like one of those things he tries to drive off. You know, the writer's like, nope. And he plows into the crowd of flesh-eating mutants, you know, and he's like, no, I'm going to drive this way. Nope. And he, you know you actually are kind of seeing the rewrites to kind of redirect him. So it's that kind of meta level commentary that makes this story interesting and stories about characters knowing that they're in a story interesting. There's, and we talk, keep talking about Stephen King. If you have read the dark tower series, um, Stephen King at one point writes himself into his story, which comprises the world of all of his stories and also as he did it also as a way to process the trauma of his own car accident when he got hit by a car when he was walking down the road and he writes that all into it and I think by doing that he actually did a much better commentary of that meta-ness than this movie did but I'm pretty sure it would have liked to have hit those levels and notes. It just didn't. But I don't know. What he's saying conclave. is that we should, we should run down John Carpenter with a car. And <laughs> Not then he could age. make this. <laughs> well, no, I mean, cause the, I, I don't know. I, you know, but that's a good point though. Carpenter was predictive here, I think, because this film mm-hmm. shows the world being brought to an end via the imagination of a mediocre horror author, which is actually a pretty great description of the state of the world right now in 2022. I mean, people say we're in the worst of all possible timelines, but I disagree because terrible would still be something spectacular. We're in the most mediocre of possible timelines, and John Carpenter could see it all the way back in 1995. We're all Sam Neill having a laugh at ourselves, only this time it's via the lens of social media rather than a cinema screen. That's, that's deep, dude. <laughs> and this is when the Conclave decided to change subjects before they realized they were actually part of a story that I was writing. I just oh, wanted to say that I think that the Conclave is doing a disservice to the amazing special effects houses, K&B, FX, and ILM, who to this day, people really applaud their work in this movie as being standing the test of time, considering it was made in the 90s. That's a huge compliment. And the amount of effort and 12 weeks, for example, took for Can B to create all the practical effects for the film. Like, 
I, give, I think that's doing them a disservice not to recognize that. I'll, I'll give it up for KMB, but I mean, ILM, no, nobody's heard of those guys since the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's definitely an amazing monster movie here that we never got to see while they were running around doubting the nature of reality. There was so much interesting <laughs> monster work and effects work happening that we should have had so much more of because it could have gone down all these different avenues into these crazy little side things happening that we just see a glimpse of for a moment and then move away from but there's your meta commentary right there because isn't the best horror film the ones that show the least of the monster the ones that show the monster the least there's the ones that people remember the mon that the monster is the most horrifying so in this yeah, case the monster like, movie we wanted to see we only saw little fragments of though ja i think the professor is right oh. like could you imagine right an entire Sutter cinematic universe of like more movies each one a different Sutter Kane like the, the greenhouse of unpleasantness and, and the gazebo of death-defying deathliness and like all that shit. Like every single monster that we see Sam Neill getting chased by down that corridor is like a different goddamn movie. That, that would, I, that would oh be great. Yeah, right. Yeah. No acting, no story, no script, just the monsters eating people <laughs> for an hour and a half. Monsters eating people. Uh, that, that would certainly be something. I, I, would, I would show up for that. Uh, I was just also saying that um, I do agree with Illuminator Andy in the sense that they took 12 weeks to create an 18 foot by 18 foot wall of monsters that was designed with animatronics and puppeteering, which was on a massive roller that took 25 people to operate. And yet it's in the movie for like a second. Yeah, right. It's like 10 seconds of time. and all Which is... A horrible shame. <laughs> All of Monsters, the movie. <laughs> Just saying, I, I could get behind that series. <laughs> also, one of the heads of this uh, KNB, Greg Nicotero, during the filming, this monstrous practical effect rolled over him, and he was sent to the hospital during production with a leg injury. Ooh. Dang. And that's going to be a fun one to explain to the doctors in the emergency room. You'll never believe what ran into me today. Telling a story about a story where he was telling a story about a story. So we're telling oh, the story about him outside. telling a story to the doctor about the story that he was making that's about a story within a story. And oh, I've got a Yeah. <laughs> and he did say that, or someone said that ILM... Who cares about them? But an interesting fact about yeah, them, that was Andy. <laughs> the interesting fact about them is that they were brought on just for that scene where Sutter Kane rips himself apart. Now, apparently, the original script had the whole of Hobbs End being sucked through this rip, but they didn't have enough budget in the movie. So one <laughs> of the effects artists at ILM suggested that Sutter Kane tear himself apart, and that's actually what ended up in the final. And that's film. way better. Yeah. It's funny how often like budget restrictions lead to amazing things. So I was I was listening to this recently. So is anybody familiar with the intro to Lord of War? It's a interesting yeah. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. basically it's it's about uh Nicolas Cage as a weapons yeah, yeah. dealer and yeah. the intro it follows a single bullet from the factory where it was made to where it's shipped to where it's sold mm -hmm. all the way into the gun that it's loaded into into some third world conflict in Africa to the poor kid who gets shot in the head with it. Right. And they shot that at the end of the movie when they had run out of budget. And they were like, "Wait, we need an intro to this movie and we want to do something cool." And they had to figure out how to do all of that 
on like next to no budget. I think they did it for like $19,000. Maybe it was 90,000, right? Which for like a major motion picture is next to nothing. And and, and it came out amazing partially because of that. So I think uh, Professor Andrea, you are you're onto something like the ripping himself open the way like artist as world builder is also self-destruction is mm-hmm. big themes. Uh, I like I mean, to I like to think of it as like the jaws effect. I mean, if the mechanical shark had been working throughout the entire shoot, it would have been there so in like all those shots where you don't see the shark, but it's the shots that you don't see the shark that actually mm-hmm. make the movie more suspenseful. So <laughs> it, in the in the end actually knew what he was doing. Yes. <laughs> you 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 left in the end just realizing that less is more, smaller mm-hmm. is bigger, and past is prologue. <laughs> I'm going to murder you. <laughs> Speaking of which, this conclave is getting rather long. So, judgment. I judge this film guilty on all counts. As much as I hate to come down on my man John Carpenter, he didn't actually write this, so I'm going to judge it guilty. Absolutely Sorry. guilty. I uh, as the Sam Neill laughs, the credits roll, the lights come up in the movie house, and at the back, Stephen King stands up like Orson Welles and just starts slow clapping the whole thing. <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> guilty. And and I would agree, this movie is delightfully giddily guilty. So you're saying we've swallowed what was in the mouth of madness? Oh, Jesus Christ. Are you saying it's past the lips of madness? Uh, Over the tongue. Around the tongue of madness. (laughs) Down the throat of madness. Just make a note. I wasn't making a sex joke there. That was just... Uh Uh, no, I really wasn't. It didn't. Uh, it just didn't occur to me that it was that until you guys all groaned. No, but and I was it's, like, it's oh, much better that way. Yes. I, I would definitely not spit out that matter. <laughs> God damn it! Let's end this. Okay, with all that madness resolved in its own mouth, and we've sent Brother Methuselah to the dentist of sanity. I hope uh, I declare this conclave closed. Finally, it was all over, and we came to the end of the movie. I was pretty sure I'd blown everyone's mind with my choice. This is a movie that dares to ask the question, am I actually real? And the answer is no. Beautiful, beautiful. And you know the best way to celebrate after working so hard? You're going to say bug powder, aren't you? <laughs> no, you don't know that. Maybe. Yes. I need a new fucking typewriter. The shitty, slimy mutant thing from Interzone just freaks everyone out, and now everything smells of bug powder. Zachariah was totally right. I should never... Never should have brought that thing home. I really ought to listen to Zachariah more. He's super smart. He always knows what's best. Ha! Two can play that game, Daniel. He said to himself, two can play at that game, Daniel. And then they totally got down to it. Sounded like two slices of bologna slapping together in the dark. Mmm. No one can ever see this. My secret shame. My flaming passion. Honey, can I smell something burning? That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Daniel Scribner, Andy Slack, Andrea Palladino, Zachariah Burks, and Ethan Ireland. Written by Andy Slack and Daniel Scribner. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland. 
graphic design by Andy Slack, music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films of the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society LLC. Fuck nuts. I did what you asked. I got the Interocitor up the ten flights of stairs from the hazardous waste storage basement. It only took me an hour and a half. Brethren? Brethren? Oh, fiddlestalks and conflammary. They've already adjourned the conclave. How will Brother Andre get to weigh in? I suppose it's all up to me. Again! Now I can do this. Let's see. First, align a subspace transit. This bit here, yes, to Altair 4. Yes, and now for the psionic wavefront attunement. Him, ground control to Brother Andre. Ground control to Brother Andre. I think it's the interocitor. Hold this. on, hold on. Hey, yo, guys. Methuselah. <laughs> New brain, who dis? <laughs> but seriously, though, Brother Methuselah, is that, is that you? You copy, Brother Andre. <clears throat> what was that? Oh, no. The chumps. I must have forgotten. <laughs> The cannibalistic humanoid underground mutant people have gotten loose again. I must hide. Hey, brother Methuselah. You all right? Mm.